It's one of the biggest social changes of the past hundred years. We seem to talk very little about its impact on our politics. The percentage of Americans who say they believe in God, pray daily, and attend church regularly is declining. Over half the UK population has no religion, according to the latest British Social Attitudes survey. Religious faith has declined across the UK, Europe, and now the US. But to what extent is religion still shaping political values and informing people's political affiliations? It is part of who I am and therefore how I approach things. I think it's right that we don't sort of um, flaunt these things here in, in British politics. And at a deeper level, is the visceral nature of our politics somehow a reflection of a deeper emptiness, a search for meaning as faith has withdrawn? Welcome back to Polarised, the podcast from the RSA that's all about the forces driving us further apart and what should be done about them. It's presented by Matthew Taylor and by me, Ian Leslie. This week, we're talking to Elizabeth Oldfield from the think tank Theos about the role of religion in our politics. Before we get started, we'd like to make sure that you know what our assumptions are, what our biases are, uh, as we like to say these days, uh, going into this discussion on, on the topic that we're about to, to discuss. So this is, this is called a full disclosure segment. Matthew, this is obviously a huge topic and, and, and you know, we could probably talk about it for, for several years, but can you just disclose your, your starting point to me? So I think my starting point is that is simply that this is a conversation that we just aren't having enough about the relationship between religion and politics and, as it were, how we feel about um, the world. And I think you can look at it at a variety of levels. So one level is the decline in religious faith and religious observance, which we've seen across uh, Europe. And we're now starting to see in America, latest research in America shows that the, the fastest growing group in America is those who don't profess to have uh, any religion. So, so there's, the, the, there's that, the kind of decline of religion, what do, and what does that mean? But yet, it is still the case that our institutions are heavily influenced by religious uh, values. Another aspect of this is that part of the European populist movement, certainly, it is a reference to the Christian uh, heritage of Europe. Viktor Orban, for example, talks a lot about the, the kind of Christian a European legacy and rediscovering that. And he uses it in ways which are quite uncomfortable. But intellectually, you, you can't critique the fact that he's thought about this quite deeply. And, and he talks about religion with a kind of confidence that very few other politicians talk about. So I, I wish I could start with some kind of simple, clear assertion. But what I feel is this is just a topic we're not talking enough about. I think you feel the way the same way, don't you? Ian? Yeah, I, I think it's really under discussed and, and sort of under-theorized as an issue when we talk about politics and polarization and, and, and what's going on in Western society, blah, blah, blah. Religion tends to be talked about as, as kind of one of the collateral effects of the, the sort of spread of markets and market-based thinking. And people go, okay, well, you know, religion's one of the things that's kind of gone into decline because of all this. We kind of leave it there. But of course, it's much more interesting than that. And, and we don't really know, you know, what way the direction of causality lies. Are some of the kind of problems of atomization and fragmentation because of the decline of religion rather than the other way around? And the, the United States is obviously incredibly pertinent and interesting to this debate because for a long time, they were the kind of 
actually the, the most religious and the most kind of market-based society out of the, the, the Western societies. But, but recently, they've been kind of catching up with, with Europe and with Britain on, in terms of secularization. Um, so that, yeah, there's this kind of fast-growing segment of, of the American population who now says they, they don't have uh, a religion. It's not the same as saying they don't believe in God, by the way. They're just not identifying with, with organized religion in the same way. Um, and what you're also seeing is, is, along with this decline in religion in, in, in the US, is an increase in polarization, right? These th- and these two things may not be unrelated. That that once people kind of, once the kind of thing that we all believe in in, in, in some level, even if we have sort of different versions of it, uh, starts to dissipate and disperse, um, then people look for other things to fight over, um, and and their and their political arguments become much more uh, uh, divisive and, and vicious. I think that's a that, that's a good thing for us to probe when we start to talk to Elizabeth. Is is that I think we we have an idea in our head, don't we? That that religion is, is quite a a big culprit for polarization, and of course, you know that is brought vividly and horribly to mind by events like the recent uh, atrocities in Sri Lanka. But, but arguably, you're right in in the sense that actually people of faith in societies like ours are ones who tend to be more socially engaged, uh, more likely to reach out, more likely to take make effort to go beyond their tribe, possibly because there is this kind of sense that to be religious is a temptation to polarization and, and, and religions are desperately wanting to demonstrate that that isn't the case. Yeah. Um, so a lot to get into. And fortunately, we've got someone who's an expert in this to talk to us about it. Um, Elizabeth uh, Oldfield. Uh, I first got to know Elizabeth. Can I call you Liz? You can either. Great. Um, I first got to know Liz when you were what, an assistant producer on Moral Maze. I think I was technically a researcher. Oh, right. Is that better or worse than an assistant It's definitely producer? worse. I was aspiring <laughs> to be an assistant producer. Um, uh, and there were, and did, have you seen that Claire Fox is standing for Brexit? I have seen. It's interesting when Moral Maze people step out of the kind of comfort of the studio yeah, and get into the front the real line. World. Anyway, Terrifying. enough of that. Ian. Ah, yes. Yeah. So, hello, Elizabeth. I'm going to call you Elizabeth because I don't know you as well as Matthew. Um, <laughs> so... Um, Let's just talk about the, the relationship between religion and, and politics in, in the UK first. Um, to, to what extent is religion uh, shaping politics still? So I think it's clear that we have had an enormous decline um of religious affiliation particularly, to get really wonky for a minute. When you think about religion, we try and break it down into affiliation, attendance and belief, or believing, belonging and behaving effectively. And so the picture's a bit more complex. We've seen a a really very significant drop in affiliation, which is basically the kind of default ticker box on a census. I feel like I'm Church of England because I don't know if I'm anything else. And interestingly, in the States, that used to be evangelical. If you weren't anything else, you might think of yourself as an evangelical, and that's declining steeply as well. Demographically, religion is on the wane. Whether that means its political influence is on the wane, we don't yet know. I'm not sure it's ever been individually as much of a driver as it has been perhaps in other countries. If you look at voting records, religious believers have always put almost exactly the same reasons for their voting patterns at the top of the list as everyone else. Economics, education, health, security, a lot further down the list might you get what we think of as more traditionally religious issues or moral issues. And that wasn't the case in somewhere like the States. And I think that's basically stayed pretty much the same. 
most people who are religious in the UK are voting not primarily out of that. Their voting patterns reflect their demographics, their, their whether they're urban or rural, their age group, their socioeconomic profile, those kind of things. We've never, ever had really that kind of sense of a, a voting block that could shift anything, not least because religious believers are really spread across political parties in the UK. And I'm not sure whether much, therefore, has actually changed. What might be changing is how active religious institutions are in civil society more generally. This is hard to evidence yet. Theos are obviously working on this, but it's almost too soon to see the effect. But what it looks like is happening is that as the numbers who are attending religious communities, particularly Christian, go down, the amount of activity they are doing, the amount of social help of kind of filling the gaps of a retreating welfare state, is how some some might describe it, is going up. They're getting more civically and socially active. Uh, Faith-based charities are on the rise, those kind of things. And therefore, in terms of where things are going, I don't think that can help but change the landscape of what's going on in public life because those issues are inherently political and they come up against all kinds of other institutions and raise all kinds of questions. But that sounds like a, a kind of acceleration of secularization because it sounds like fewer people are uh, kind of uh, committing to to faith, but faith inst- and the faith institutions are becoming less focused on faith and more focused on a kind of social function. And you know, I mean, and I, I can understand that because I'm one of those people whose position you might describe as being hypocritical or or, or, or incoherent. But I support faith. My uh, wife is a Catholic, goes to Mass every Sunday. Occasionally I go and I was incredibly impressed by the kind of diversity of the congregation and by the kind of feeling there. But I don't believe myself. So I think faith is a good thing, but I don't believe. I would t- can I just push back on that narrative because I think it's nonsense. Right. You've separated out, <laughs> you've separated out uh, social activity with what faith and religion is. If you go back to the scriptures, those things are not at all separate in the Christian faith and more broadly, that it's a very post-Enlightenment idea of what religion is, that we believe these certain doctrinal positions in our head in the private sphere and everything in the public sphere is secular and non-religious. If you look at the history of civil society and charity just in the UK, just ju- let's just talk about the church if we're just picking one example hospitals, schools, education, these things are inherent and intrinsic to religious activity. I think what's happening is a recapturing of that fuller understanding of what faith does in the world that got a bit squashed by, and what's interesting is the church was, and Christian thinkers were really key architects of the welfare state, but after the welfare state and a sense that, okay, we'll take this from here, the state says, and also some of the excesses of a Rulesy and privatized understanding of how we avoid conflict in the public square made religious people feel like that was no longer a legitimate thing for them to do, that they felt like they were suspected when they did things like that. I don't think they're any less suspected now, but the need is higher, and therefore religious people are regaining confidence in that full expression of their faith. But the thing that, okay, I'm not going to keep interrupting, but. The point is, for me, part the point about faith, and maybe 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 this is kind of classic thing, which is when you don't have something, you exaggerate it. 
because you kind of assume that someone else has got something. If only you had it, then your life would be easier. But I kind of assume the thing about faith is that you believe there is a kind of meaning, there is a kind of order, there is a kind of pattern, there is a kind of purpose to all of this, which is not, generally speaking, a feeling that I have very often. And 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 so my point is not that when religion reaches out into the rest of society that it's doing something that's non-religious, as it were. My point is that what it's saying is you can have a connection with the church and with faith without having to believe this core bit that there is something else going on beyond the kind of well, empirical universe. Do you have to universe. believe in God or not in order well, to... Well, yeah, 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 you are, you are getting to the point in. Of yeah, course, I mean, yeah. it's like, I, 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 this is the thing, but I, I have the same thing. I, I, I think it, somebody posted a question on Twitter the other day saying, uh, I, I'm not religious, but, but don't some of you atheists like me think it would be better, especially at times of of grief, you know, bereavement. Uh, I don't know if this person had recently had that experience. To to be religious, because it gives you this kind of structure to work work things through, and that kind of provoked a, a lively debate. But I tended to agree with her, and perhaps not just at times of grief. Like It seems to me, like, objectively speaking, a better way to live. But that doesn't mean that I can just be religious, because I have this problem, which is, I'm just, I don't think I believe in God. I can't Never, I don't really have that instinct. And it feels almost like a kind of you have to have that intuition or that instinct to begin with. And so I don't think it's it's crazy what Matthew's saying, which is like, you know, uh, you could, the, the, there's the public, there's the social activity of, of going to church and, and behaviour and so on. And there's the, the, the kind of private belief. They do have to kind of line up, right? So so I know what you're saying about, you know, it's it's never just been about taking certain doctrinal positions and so on. Jesus but. talks about the sheep and the goats, right? <laughs> Feed the hungry, right. visit yeah. those in prison. Yeah, These yeah. are fairly, you know, from We're the mouth. We're agreeing with of, you on that. We're agreeing with you yeah. on the social role. Got yeah. that? Yeah. It, it, the question is the 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 the, the gold bit. <laughs> well, I mean, I can talk to you in more detail about that as individuals, and I do think part of it is the plausibility structures have changed. That say a hundred years ago, it was much easier to default to the possibility of there being God. Charles Taylor's brilliant on this, the sense of there being a kind yes. of secularizing sweep where the, the stories that we hear, the sense of the people that we look up to, the communities, crucially, that we're in make belief easier or less totally easy. Agree. The default position has changed. That's a good, good way to put it. Absolutely. And that, yeah, that, 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 that is kind of crucial. So now it becomes a real kind of, for a lot of people anyway, increasing number of people, a real decision, a kind of thing you have to really kind of go for. Whereas before it was like, yeah, I'll go along with it. Um, and, but that, but when, when there's a sufficient mass of people who are going along with it, then you get the, the, all the benefits of social, you know, it's a form of social capital. It's a very powerful form of social capital. And we are kind of increasingly short on those sources, which yeah. is why I kind of... And I think the premise that you talked about in the introduction about is there a connection between this decrease and the rise of political polarisation is is there's something in it. There's a guy in, uh, called Michael Weir in the States who's a political theorist, worked closely with Obama on his faith strategy. And he talks brilliantly and movingly about the fact that we're placing too much weight on politics for our psychic and existential hungers oh, and our now needs. We now we get to it. You know, we need, st- we, and we know this from, you know, the RSA's work on the Social Brain Centre and, funnily enough, centuries of theology and religious anthropology that we are social, we need to belong and we need meaning and narrative and story and a sense of telos, a sense of purpose, a sense of progress, all of which many people used to find and millions do, still the majority of the world, in religion. And as we're looking around for alternatives to that, as society secularised, politics looks like the best bet, right? But there's something in placing that much hunger and need and angst in politics that looks like it's distorting politics it's, itself. It's distorting the mechanisms of it. Well, let's get now. So let's. This is 
there were so many other things I want to talk about, but you've absolutely got to the really interesting thing early on. So let's stay with this. It's it's, it's so interesting. So for me, uh, uh, I mean, I've just finished a book. Ian and I are both finishing books, so we're going to be using this podcast now and on a pretty regular basis. To <laughs> we'll mention the titles of, regularly. Yeah, to, to, Pre-orders uh, available on you, Amazon. Once you've worked out what your title I is. I haven't even got a title, but yeah, we, we will be talking about our books on a regular basis. But um, uh, I... I in my book, one of the things is I talk about fatalism as as one of the four core kind of drivers of human motivation. So I talk about hierarchy, or that's to say authority. I talk about solidarity, which is belonging. I talk about individualism, um, which is my kind of freedom. And I talk about fatalism. Now, religion it primarily exists in the domains of solidarity and fatalism. Of course, religions can be very hierarchical, but it's about belonging and we can talk about that. But it's also about coping with the fact that we're going to die and be forgotten. And the fact that we're going to die and be forgotten is a pretty intolerable thing for us to kind of hold. And arguably the search for, you know, it's not Ernest Becker, for example, wrote a wonderful book, The Denial of Death. You know, for him, we are just driven by the, the impossibility of coping with this truth. Now, religion, on the one hand, it enables us to face up to that. And I think a lot of people spend a lot of their lives trying to avoid even thinking about it. And secondly, it says, don't worry, because there'll be something, indefinably. There is some meaning beyond that and outside that. So your thesis, as I get it, at least to an extent, is that would you agree with the idea that in a sense there is something about the human condition that is almost unbearable without faith? I think that good religion, and toxic religion as we know exists, but good forms of faith can be one of the most psychologically healthy ways of being alive for individuals and for society. So I was in church for Easter Sunday, and I, I've been a Christian for about 10 years. It's deeply powerful and real to me but I was having one of these things and you've asked me about doubt in the past Matthew I was having one of those days where I didn't believe it and it happens every so often it just sort of slides out of focus uh it's like that thing at the opticians where they change the lenses and it was like the lenses had gone oh or maybe I don't believe any of this today and I've just got used to that because it passes and it slides back into focus but I was in church on Easter Sunday having one of those moments and all I felt was oh, thank God I'm here, because this story that we are collectively telling, even if I don't believe it, and to be clear, most of the time I do, I'm not saying that, you know, religion is just a good story, but even if I don't believe it, this collective act of looking grief and death and disappointment and defeat in the face on an intentional, regular basis together, of talking about our weaknesses together, of looking forward to hope, but hope that has still hope that still bears scars, hope that's not triumphalist or narrow or shallow. That felt like a wonderful place to be that day, even in my doubts. And so my answer to your question is yes. I feel like these stories, these communities, of which you can't separate out the belief in God, are immense resources, gifts, powerfully good for us in their best forms. And of course, we always have to caveat as with that. That power can go really wrong. Mm-hmm. And and it's clear, you know, just from the, the very eloquent and, and heightened way that you talk about it, that... Well, I don't think you can get that from from politics. I mean, some people do find it in... Well, no, question is, <coughs> I guess, no, I guess question is can do. you, should you? I and mean, I think that's the right. point. So I think people do search for this in politics. Is that a good thing when politics feels 
like that. That's what this program is often about, is, is that we, I think you and I both feel slightly squeamish about, about, about that level of kind of personal commitment and faith. And, and, and I'm not saying this in a disparaging way, Liz, but blind faith are being applied to politics. <laughs> not disparaging. <laughs> well, no, 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 because the point, the point is it's blind faith in the sense that I'm not going sh- to sit here and give... I, I could sit here for all day and give you all sorts of... I could, do, I could, I could go full Dawkins and it'd make absolutely no difference to you at all because it would be irrelevant. It's not, it's, not subse- it's, not, it's not susceptible to those kinds of empirical arguments, whereas politics ought to be. I mean, it ought to be possible for me to have any for conversation with anyone with a political set of political views and to present them with yeah. facts which discomfort them. But I've, then... Okay, I, I'll... I would, I'll just say, I'd just like to register my disagreement uh, yeah. with the complete irrelevance of empirical arguments to religious faith. But you're right, leaving <laughs> okay, that aside, that's right. not what this podcast is for, so we won't do that. <laughs> but I, uh, I do think that, uh, that... We're talking about two poles here, right? Do we want politics to be an ent- entirely technocratic, essentially kind of functional... Yeah. Uh, administrative job that we want someone to do to make yes. us free to live our lives. You two do. As or, long as it's us that are doing it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or people like her. Yeah. Or do we want something that is more emotionally involving, uh, more whole of life calling for, more more holistic, m- that feeds those more existential desires? And I think there's danger in both those poles that actually... Uh, Human beings are political because we are communal. And yes, we do want story. And healthy politics sits somewhere between those two. And we have to keep adjusting its course. And I think we've probably Mm. swung um, a little bit too far to the emotional narrative heightened, you know, tell me my life means something end of things. But I would be very scared about going right back to the other end because there's a potential for enormous abuse of power there. Can we just just, just shift a, a little bit to this question of, even though religious observance may may have gone down, and even though most people probably wouldn't even know that we have a kind of established religion in this country, some people would argue still the kind of traces of this are quite important. And what, what some people, for example, would say Brexit was partly about Protestantism versus Catholicism. They would say the European project is a Catholic project. Oh, I hadn't heard that before. Yeah, and that's what Orban is asserting. And, you know, in the end, you know, since Henry VIII, we've always had a bit of a problem about entering into this religious political project, the religious political project of Europe. Do you think there's any truth in that? My colleague Ben Ryan's written a a great piece on this called A Soul for the Union, which does trace the impacts and the influence of Catholic social thought, particularly on the forming of the EU. And it's there. The fingerprint all over at Maritain, you know, subsidiarity, which is a core principle, is literally lifted from a papal encyclical. And I do think Commitment to workers' rights, which is a big Catholic social teaching theme. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. It it goes very deeply. Whether most Protestants, even Protestant country political leaders, are aware of that, are even consciously reacting against that, I would doubt. Uh, we do know that Catholics, are, depending on which country you look at, the data's a bit patchy, but Catholics are generally more pro the European project. Catholics in the UK are uh, much more um, remain leaning than, example, Anglicans. Um, do you think we underestimate the degree to which, as it were, that the, the, the traces of religion still exist? So, for example, I was in Berlin last week, and actually, we could Germany, you know, the Catholic west of Germany is pro-European, looks to the west, liberal. The more Protestant east of Germany has tended to be more sceptical about the European project and has tended to look towards Russia and has been more problematic politically. Now, in a sense, that seems almost detached from whether people are actually going to church. It's, it's, it, but it's still 
enmeshed in the kind of culture. I think it's massively under understood how deeply Christianity has formed us. You know, there's a classic old chestnut that Europe is the Greeks and the Bible. And I think that that applies to the UK as much as anywhere else. Maybe we're the Greeks, the Bible and Shakespeare. Those are our kind of key formative influences. Ian's got a bit of Beatles thing. To I'm not sure Just so Beatles you know, have... he's got a Beatles thing. Okay, I'll let that pass. <laughs> that they want to press on a, that is his face, a sore yeah. sacred you need value to there. I can't believe you're disrespecting <laughs> my face. Um, but yeah, and you know, this is a case in point, and it's about to kick off again because there's a few books coming out this year that will make this case. And a few years ago, Larry Siddentop, who's an incredibly respected historian, was making this case that so many of our values that we think of as Western values are, in fact, Christian values. I totally see that. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. are, but where do you go from there? Because that argument can make atheists and humanists feel like there's a land grab going on for the things they believe or that you're saying, well, you can't be good because you're not really a Christian. And it can be very much used by Christian nationalists, by uh, populist movements who might necessarily not be particularly religious themselves to have a kind of what's been called a Christianism, a kind of Christian political identity, which doesn't mean anything deeper, really, other than not Muslim. That Christian national identity, Christian European mm. identity gets used in ways that I think are deeply uh, counter to what at least the, you know, the scriptures and Jesus' teaching talk about, and then become an exclusive project. And that's why, understandably, people are really nervous about religion in public life, and particularly that kind of politicised Christianity, which can be a polarising and divisive force. But isn't that something that, I mean, that's something that really has changed, isn't it? In the, in the sense, I was going to ask you this on a kind of personal level. You know, I find, uh, taking away the kind of uh, the extremes, I probably have more in common with kind of thoughtful Tories than people who are not interested in politics at all. We are part of the same tribe. We kind of think politics can solve problems or we're kind of interested in engaging in society. Is it the same for you? Do you have more in common with Muslims and Hindus who share faith, even if it's a different faith, than people like Ian and myself? I think I've got more in common with people who ask themselves and think thoughtfully about society at the level of existential questions. So some of those people are religious, some of those people wouldn't want to call themselves religious, but people who are interested not just in the material, the outward systems and processes, but are interested in our internal worlds, how we make them more healthy and humane, and how we are more kind of vulnerable and open and human in public in the way we engage with each other. And that crosses religious and non-religious boundaries, and there's a lot of religious people who don't necessarily think on that level. If, 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 if a politician were to arise, and Theresa May goes to church, and it's a big thing for her, you know, she gets photographed coming out of church on a Sunday, but if we are politicians who said, it is important that we understand we're a Christian country, but there's a modern understanding of that, that's not a sectarian position, it is just who we are, and we need to live up to those values, how would you feel about that? So I always want to ask, what do you mean? Judeo-Christian values, one, I'm realising lots of Jewish people find that quite offensive, but also Judeo-Christian values gets bandied around in lots of different ways, many of which I find quite disturbing. If what we're saying is our nation has been shaped by a sense of a sense of hospitality to the stranger, to the other, and it's been shaped by which is all over the Old Testament and goes right through our legal system, a commitment to justice and particularly access to justice, not just for the powerful. I think the key thread in Christian political thinking is this curtailing power, curtailing the power of those who would oppress the poor. And if that's what you mean, then yes, I'm delighted. We have been a Christian nation. I want us to stay a Christian nation. Let's live up to that heritage. If what you mean is we're not Muslims yeah. and we don't want Muslims here or you know, we're going to sneer and look down on non-traditional family forms or any of those things that it often gets used yeah, or, by. Or if you're Muslim, you're not fully British. I mean, exactly. that's the... 
the problem with that. Exactly. So uh, as with all these things, it really depends how you're using it. And at the moment, the way particularly the far right and lots of populist movements are, I think, illegitimately using Christian symbolism. There's all kinds of places in Europe at the moment where parties are trying to impose crucifixes or, you know, trying to impose eating pork in schools or all these other things, which look to me just a way of using Christian symbolism as a kosh to beat the other. And that is really problematic and, and makes me nervous about talking about Christianity and politics because of how badly wrong it can So this is, a, this is a big issue then in terms of in the context of a programme about polarisation, because I actually am with you. But this kind of middle ground, it seems to me, is unlikely to hold if what you have got is, on the one hand, the kind of Orban attempt to use Christianity in this kind of exclusive uh, anti-Islamic kind of way. What the counter-reaction to that is unlikely to be what, you, what, what, what you've just been talking about. The counter-reaction is likely to be an aggressive... Uh, secularism and indeed atheism. Can you see any kind of coalition? And is it a coalition that actually involves other faiths as well that says there is a centre ground that we can hold here, which is to say that faith matters, that faith constitutes us, but resists the, the, the use of it in these kind of sectarian populist ways? I mean, if you, if, you, if you scratch the surface, I think this, particularly in the UK in terms of our political heritage, goes deep in a lot of places. Even observant religious people who tend to vote conservative on economic issues would be uh, warmer towards immigrants, to refugees, to asylum seekers. We have got still quite a strong heritage uh, across the board uh, in terms of that more hospitable and inclusive posture. There's a, a theologian called Abraham Kuyper who talks about Christian pluralism, been picked up by a guy called Shadi Hamid in the States who is a Muslim political theorist and talks about Christian pluralism as this potentially extraordinary idea that can hold us together in these societies. But whether these institutions that exist can come together in that meaningful way when, I'll be honest, I worry about a lot of faith communities being in quite a defensive crouch because we are still feeling the rumbles of the peak of new atheist rhetoric. A lot of decent, thoughtful people of faith who don't necessarily spend all their time thinking about political pluralism don't necessarily have the confidence to be public about what they believe, don't necessarily have the confidence to say this is why I believe what I believe or this is why I act like I do in volunteering in the food bank or whatever it is. And therefore, thinking internally about faith communities, I'd like to see a growth in the confidence that it's okay to be in public believing what you believe in this plural public square. We, we all believe different things. We all hold loads of different values that are drawn from different sources that we can't necessarily evidence. And then you might see a recapturing of that moment that happened around the welfare state, that happened around the European project, where theology was powerfully public for good. But it would take a real change in the atmosphere, I think. Well, that's brilliant. I think it's uh, it certainly made me, I'm sure, I don't know what you, how you feel, it made me feel this is something that I, I shouldn't just be more interested in, but possibly more kind of act active in there is a position there is a position that says i'm not a person of faith but actually i think that we 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 need to recognize an inclusive account of faith and the value that it's got so i would say everyone is a person of faith and also there's been an enormous trajectory in the last half of the 20th century for um believing without belonging actually it goes both ways depending on but, which I, want level. Belonging, but I want belonging without believing yes that's, that's, yeah, that's, right. what, that's what i was going to follow that's what i was going to follow up with there's lots of people who believe but don't belong it's entirely possible to belong without believing and actually there would be an argument that in order to believe you first have to yeah. belong and even in belonging there is something fruitful and good there yeah but i think you're saying that because you think that if you belong and you don't believe sooner or later the belonging will make you believe well but of course anyway, because i think it's true yeah yeah i mean you know <laughs> belief not? follows behavior that's that's i know but well, the great thing is you think 
if I, you, you think if I come to church more often, I'm more likely to believe. Whereas, you know, from politically, I would say. I would never have said in the Labour Party, if you want to believe in socialism, go to more Labour oh, Party well, branch. That's, 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 a bit, that's a bit different. <laughs> Elizabeth Oldfield, <laughs> thank you very much for joining us. Um, if people want to hear more from you, where can they go? Uh, uk, or I'm on Twitter at Theos Elizabeth, or we have a podcast ourselves called The Sacred about engaging across difference. Marvellous. Thank you very much. Thank you. Before we go, we like to end each episode with a provocation, something that's shifted the way we look at the world just a little bit. Matthew, what's provoked you? So, a couple of things. There there was a poll uh, that came out last week, European Council on Foreign Relations, ahead of the European elections. So, there's that. I was in Berlin last week uh, for a a meeting of the progressive uh, governance movement. And then there were Spanish elections that have just taken place. And I think if I put all these three things together, what you have is a situation where, on the one hand, you can make a strong argument that things aren't that bad. You know, that the poll showed that actually people are, across Europe aren't obsessed by immigration. There isn't really that much sign of a kind of massive uh, polarisation. At this conference in Berlin, you know, people were saying, well, actually, you know, broadly speaking, the European project is on track and we're still broadly a kind of progressive continent. In the Spanish elections, we saw, you know, OK, not with a terribly impressive vote, but the socialists got elected and they're going to put together some kind of centre-left coalition, I guess. But then on the other hand... You see that in those Spanish elections, the right-wing party did very well. It's the first time a hard right party has done well since Spain became um, a, a democracy. The, there is a real possibility these Europe elections, may, we may see uh, the extremes and the extreme right you know, actually do uh, very well. At that Berlin conference, it was also the case that people were saying centre parties are being, you know, doing very, very badly across the whole of Europe. This was a a group of people who first started gathering under Clinton and Schroeder and Blair when it looked like the kind of soft left was was sweeping the world. Now some of those parties have almost ceased to exist. So I've got a thesis, and my thesis is both these things are kind of true, that we are still a progressive continent. There's nothing at the moment would necessarily lead us to believe that things are going to fragment and fall apart. But there are also quite powerful... Uh, movements and feelings which could lead to a polarisation. And I wonder whether the critical factor is the economy. I wonder whether, you know, in a sense, Ian, if, if the economy stays on track, broadly speaking, if things don't go wrong, then the kind of more positive side is the one that will out. But actually, if we were to have a big economic downturn now, the populists, the right, are so well organised that, that, that they would be able to move into a, a situation of, of anger and anxiety. You were in Berlin. I, I was in. I was in Paris uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I was talking to people about French politics, and they were saying it, it's all interconnected. If uh, if French if French voters see that Italy has completely staunched it, the flow of immigrants, uh, if Salvini has kind of stopped immigrants into into Italy, they'll they'll start saying, "Well, why can't we have that in France?" And but then they and then they start. Do you know Italy is one of the countries in Europe with the least concern about immigration when you do if you look at the opinion polls it's comp- i mean i'm ju- i'm i'm not i don't know, know enough about italy yeah. but it, to me it was, it was fascinating the way he was talking about it as 
he was just pointing out there were, there were so many forces acting on, on our politics that we can't predict and the reactions to them are going to be equally unpredictable. So, for instance, you know, in France, he said, if the Algerian government um, collapses, which is you know a possibility, then then that's going to have a huge impact on our uh, on our politics. To me, the the kind of the, the fact that you can find so many different stories when you analyse these events, when you look at Brexit or when you look at the Spanish elections, th- th- they're much less amenable to to kind of oh this is what happened type type stories or this is where we're going type stories than than political events have been perhaps in, in the past. Uh, that that is they're more complex. There's many more possible narratives you can pick. If there is a what's going on story to be told. It, it must be about fragmentation. The thing that's been long predicted, which is consumerization of, of politics. So we have all these different options now. We're much less likely to be loyal to one party, one, one institution, or even kind of one ideology. And since we last met, we've had the Ukrainian president elect on the basis that he was a very benign prime minister in a television program where he played the Prime Minister. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. But we, you know, and, and uh, we also had a Slovakian um, pr- uh, leader, president, yeah. uh, uh, elected on the basis of actually bringing people together, yeah. which, again, doesn't kind of... So so there's lots of different kind of narratives that all kind of go... But I, I think if there is a, a common theme, it's, it's that, yeah, there's just going to be a lot more volatility, a lot more people kind of switching, using their vote instrumentally. Okay, in the European elections, I might vote for the Brexit party, not me personally, but... Um, because it's useful at the moment in order for, for me to kind of have an effect on policy. It can hammer kind of the Labour and Tory MPs into submission on, on Brexit. Am I going to be loyal to that party? For, for No, probably not. So so people will switch across, you know, parties and, and use use their vote in different ways according to what's going on, according to their particular feeling in the moment. And you'll, you'll see consequently a lot more kind of change, a lot more volatility. Yeah, I agree with that. I think the, the one thing I'd want to leave us with, though, is, is and, I know that, and I know that Hungary is very different from Western Europe. You know, it's been a democracy for a much shorter time. But I think I should end by things that were being said at this Berlin conference by a Hungarian social democrat. And what he said was, what you need to remember is that once these people get into power, things can change very, very quickly. So it's not just the swing of the pendulum, because if the pendulum swings to a kind of Orban character, he doesn't let it ever swing back. Now, whether or not that could ever happen here, I don't know, but it's worth pondering upon. Agreed. That's it for this episode of Polarised. We'll be back again in two weeks' time. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell somebody about it. Um, And we'd really appreciate it if you left us a rating or a review in your podcast app. It really helps other people find us. Polarised was presented by Matthew Taylor and Ian Leslie. The producer was James Shield, and we were brought to you by the RSA.